the majority of the sort of emergencies and crises have, have come up offshore has been not so much in the medical side of thing, but just in, in the, the boat management, um, uh, various things breaking, boat beginning to sink. Um, we had an experience up in the Arctic with uh, losing our, our captain overboard, um, where we'd, we'd sailed up to uh, Yan Mayan, which is a, a little volcanic island in the, the middle of the, um, the, uh, the, in, in the middle of the ocean way up north of, of Iceland, uh, it's about 750 nautical miles, I think, from the, the North Pole. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Marcus Stevens, and today we are joined by Dr. Jamie Jordan. Jamie is a GP based in Oxford and has extensive experience working in a range of remote and austere settings, including some of the world's great oceans. Jamie is a friend from medical school and a former colleague in West Africa working with Critical Care International. Outside of medicine, Jamie is a cyclist, climber, caver, kayaker and swimmer with a particular interest in extreme endurance events. In addition, he has spent over a decade sailing, crossing the Atlantic three times and most recently spent three months in the Southern Ocean, home to some of the world's biggest waves. Today, we're going to talk about that trip and a lot more as we focus in on sailing medicine. Now, we've both worked in parts of West Africa that are pretty remote, five or six hours drive, perhaps, from the nearest hospital. Uh, but some of the places that, that Jamie's worked um, are really about as inaccessible as you can get on this planet. Now, Jamie, do you want to kick us off by telling us a bit about what makes offshore sailing medicine such a challenging and fascinating place to be a doctor? Yeah, well, thank you. I, I guess um, the best place to start with that is, is thinking about what makes it such a, a challenging and, and fascinating place to be, you know, full stop. Um, and you know, I, I love being at sea. It's, it's an amazing sort of beautiful wilderness. Um, it's often about as remote as it's possible to get. Um, and it's, it's often just a really difficult place to be. You know, it's, it's big and cold and, and violent and the weather changes all the time and the sea state is incredibly variable. And, yeah, things never stop moving. Um, it's yeah, everything is just very, uh, very dynamic. Very yeah, um, you feel very kind of connected and engaged with your environment. Yeah, pretty much the whole time whilst you're out at sea. Um, and I guess all of those factors kind of play into um, yeah, higher risks of, of particular injuries and illnesses. Um, but then also making it yeah, particularly challenging to, to treat those injuries and illnesses when they when they do pop up. Um, mostly because things just won't bloody stop moving. <laughs> Fascinating. It, it sounds, my stomach's already uh, a little bit unsettled just, just thinking about it. Um, now, do you just want to tell us a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about yourself perhaps and, and how you got into sailing to start with and, and then how you combined a love of sailing with, with your, your medical career? Uh, yeah, so I, I've been sailing since I was a kid. Um, you know, I started off just sailing dinghies on on local lakes. Yeah, where I was growing up in in Aberdeenshire. Um, and then as I got a bit older, started to get into um, yeah more sort of yacht sailing, offshore sailing. Um, I started to volunteer with the Ocean Youth Trust on the west coast of Scotland. Um, so I was working as a, a bosun with them, which basically just involved sort of unblocking toilets at sea. Um, and then uh, when I went into when I started at university, I managed to kind of talk my way onto the crew on a, a tall ship um, during my holidays at uni. 
um, and ended up sort of sailing most of the way around the UK with them and then to yeah, across the, the Baltic to Russia and back um, and doing yeah, various other voyages on that ship and, and just kind of gradually building up my mileage, building up my experience. And at the same time, I, I was getting very engaged with um, other sort of outdoor sports and, and I guess more kind of expedition focused activities. Um, so doing lots of caving through the, the caving club at uni. Um, and ended up pretty heavily involved in in some cave, uh, some yeah very deep cave exploration. Um, and then it was really just yeah it, very much enjoying the the experience of sailing, the experience of being offshore, um, and loving the sense of of real kind of true remoteness that you got with with the caving. Um, that yeah got me into into yeah expedition medicine as a whole and, and that's yeah what I've been trying my best to pursue over the last few years. Fascinating. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about your first time crossing the Atlantic? It's something I suppose that a, a lot of us that have got a bit of an adventurous spirit have got in the back of our minds um, to do at some point. Uh, what what was that like? Yeah, it was. Um, so that was when was it? Twenty seventeen. Um, and it was part of the, the tall ships race. Um, so I, I ended up joining um, uh, a three-masted sailing boat called Blue Clipper. Um, sailed from London down to the Canaries and then uh, across the Atlantic to Bermuda and then up the east coast of the US and Canada. Um, so I was away for about three months and um, yeah, a good few thousand miles at sea. And just a fantastic adventure. Yeah, really. Um, a uh, challenging time in terms of the, the boat itself. So we had a lot of breakages, we had lots of things go wrong. Um, we started sinking partway across the Atlantic, um, which was uh, interesting at the time. <laughs> um, but I um, uh, just loved every minute of it really. And uh, yeah, it really cemented that that was just what I wanted to be doing with my life as, as much as I possibly could be. Goodness, um, I can sense a, a slight difference between us already. Uh, I think if, if a boat had started sinking on my first trip, I perhaps wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have revisited it. But um, when you, you're talking about tall ships, and um, I'm picturing kind of Pirates of the Caribbean uh, vibes, do you want mm -hmm. to just tell a little bit about the different types of sailing, if you will? Um, you know, the sort of thing that springs to mind when, when I think about the offshore um, world and, and, and the Southern Ocean, as we'll come on to, is the ocean race and, and those sort of things. Where do, do those kind of races mm. and those kind of ships fit into the, to the wider spectrum of, um, of sailing? Yeah, so I guess you can, you can sort of roughly split uh, the offshore sailing world into maybe kind of three categories. Um, so you've got the, the small boats, the cruisers, yeah, people just going off and doing their own thing and, and having an adventure. Um, you've got the, um, the, the racing teams and, and the, yeah, the offshore racing is a, a particularly big scene in, uh, not so much in the UK, but in, in France, for example, then it's, it's sort of one of their national sports and, and there's huge amounts of, um, yeah, funding and, and public attention goes into it. So you end up with these, amazing kind of beautiful high performance carbon fiber racing machines yeah going off and, and zooming around the world non-stop um and then maybe the kind of the third category is is somewhere in between but not really very similar to either which is is the sort of tall ships scene um which is more about um yeah larger boats they're often uh, traditionally rigged but not always um so you've got different classes of, of tall ships ranging from 
the uh, sort of 70 foot long, yeah, reasonably modern uh, sailing yachts um, up to the, yeah, the kind of the, 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 what you think about when you think about sort of a pirate ship. So the, yeah, the big square rigged um, old fashioned sailing ships and, and pretty much everything in between. And they're much more focused on yeah, youth development and, and giving people experiences of sailing offshore and, and, and seeing what they can learn yeah, from, from those experiences. Interesting. Yeah, it, good to good, put it all into uh, to perspective for, for some of us like myself who um, haven't been offshore um, and, um, yeah, get a feel for, for, for what you're on when you're out there. So um, you've obviously done an awful lot and been to some, some fascinating places, um, but most recently you were in the Southern Ocean um, heading to Antarctica from, from Argentina, if I'm correct. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what that trip mm. was and, and what was your role um, on that trip? Yeah, sure. So that, that was on a um, on a, a tall ship, so on a, a three-masted, square-rigged uh, ship that was built in, I think, 1911 or 1912. And um, uh, they, yeah, they, they run these trips every year where they sail from uh, the southern tip of Argentina down to Antarctica. Um, with a crew of usually between about 15 and 20 sort of professional crew on board, and then 35-ish uh, paying guests who are a, a mixture of uh, tourists and photographers and sometimes some scientists going down there to yeah do a whole variety of, of different projects. Um, and, and they um, they do a few trips from Argentina down to Antarctica and back, and then they do this very big trip at the end of the season where they sail um, Argentina, Antarctica, and then up to South Georgia and across the Southern Ocean to Tristan de Cunha, which is the, the most uh, remote inhabited island in the world. Uh, and then on from there to, to Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and so that was the trip that I joined them for, um, which was yeah somewhere around about three months of, uh, of sailing. Um, and yeah, it was, it was quite an adventure. Um, so yeah, really uh, wonderful introduction to yeah, Antarctica as, as just this uh, stunningly beautiful place that you just feel incredibly privileged to, to have the opportunity to, to see. Um, and then the Southern Ocean, which often didn't really feel like too much of a privilege, but was, was uh, uh, challenging in, in, in lots of ways to, to, to be stuck out there for a few days on end. Goodness, H having seen footage of, of southern ocean storms and and some of the swells um yeah goodness me it must have been must have been incredible um how, how do you prepare for a trip like that so i mean personally three months away um and, and medically how, how did you approach um kind of preparations for such an extended trip in in such a remote place so thinking about the medical preparations um this particular boat, Europa, um, they're very well organized and have quite a professional approach to uh, a very professional approach to yeah, the, what they're doing and, uh, and that they're sort of set up on board in terms of medical equipment and, and facilities. Um, and so they've got yeah, very extensive medical supplies there on board um, and, and they have good connections with um, a whole bunch of, of Dutch doctors because it's, it's a Dutch company. Um, and so there's there's the um, the facility to to get medical advice via the satellite communications whilst we're away at sea. 
Um, and so with them, I actually I didn't need to do a huge amount in terms of the logistics, the preparations. They kind of had that all all up and running and, and ready for me when I joined. Um, and so I guess I was doing more personal preparation um, and just trying to learn as much as I could and revise as much as I could about the uh, the, the various different things that were likely to pop up. Um, and I suppose that the the thing that really made this trip very different from the, the trips that I'd done previously um, was that uh, whenever you go sailing offshore, it's it's pretty remote and you can often be a good few days from from help. Um, but when we were down that far south, then it really is, it's a, a different level, a different kind of category of remoteness. Um, and it can easily be you know, a week plus to, to evacuate somebody from the boat or, or to get you know, extra help on board. Um, so I, I was I was very keen to, to make sure that I felt confident that I could manage yeah, most things that could conceivably pop up and, and that I would at least be able to yeah, put the, the equipment that we had on board to, to the best possible use if, if need be. Um, and then I suppose in terms of personal preparation, um, that in some ways was more challenging. Um, so yeah, three months, it's a long time to be away, a uh, long time to be leaving my, my wife behind for. And um, I suppose I'm, I'm very lucky with, with a, a very understanding wife who puts up with me disappearing off for large chunks of time. And and also quite lucky with my career and that I'm a, a GP, it's very flexible. Um, I uh, sadly had to, to quit a job that I was really enjoying, um, working at a, a practice for the homeless population here in, in Oxford um, in order to yeah, get enough time to, to go off and, and do the trip. Um, but for me, it felt like it was it was very much worth it, and I've been fortunate that they've um, taken me back now that I've uh, I've returned to the UK. Fantastic. Um, I think the the thing that really draws me personally to to this sort of topic and and why I really wanted to sort of chat today was just how remote that is, and I think it's it's hard to for a lot of people to to comprehend just how sort of helpless, if you will, you you are there when, when something goes wrong. Uh, do you mind talking us through you know, what are the options if, if someone were to become quite unwell? Um, you know, you mentioned kind of a, a week or so. H- how would you go about um, getting someone to secondary care? I mean, or, or even just to, you know, to, to land um, from some of those remotest parts of, of the Southern Ocean? Yeah, so um, with difficulty in, in a lot of cases, um, and it, it would depend whereabouts we were yeah, throughout that trip. Um, so, yeah, obviously when we're close-ish to, to Argentina, then there are options to have somebody um, helivacked from the, from the ship if we're within a couple of hundred miles, perhaps, of, of shore. Um, or often the, the fastest option would just be to turn around and, and, and sail at full speed back to Argentina. Um, but once we're yeah properly down south and 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 yeah past the South Shetland Islands and down towards Antarctica, you you are into a much more remote environment where often there are no other ships around for yeah very considerable distances. And particularly with us, um, we were yeah during this trip we were we were at the end of the sort of Antarctic uh, tourist season, as you will, so that there were there were no other cruise ships or any other you know, sailing ships around in in the vicinity. Um, the closest support that we'd have had around Antarctica itself are there are a variety of Antarctic research bases, um, some of which have got doctors at them and have got sort of a little bit more equipment than we had on, on the boat. 
Um, and so there's the potential to evacuate somebody to a, a research base in the Antarctic in, in real extremis. Um, and then once you've left Antarctica and you're heading off across the Southern Ocean, um, there's really not very much at all. So there's, there's no commercial shipping down there. There's, there's no particular reason for other boats to, to be around. And so if, if something goes wrong, it's, it's very much up to you to, to get yourself out and, and get the casualty out. And, and that's happened a few times before with, with Europa, where they've had somebody yeah, seriously injured um, down in, in the Southern Ocean or um, in the South Atlantic, a, a long way from land. And their evacuation has essentially involved yeah, turning the ship around and, and going full speed towards the Falklands or, or towards the, the nearest bit of land where they can yeah, and then evacuate somebody onwards from. Um, and actually, probably the, the best medical care that we had access to that the whole yeah throughout the whole trip, um, weirdly enough, was was at Tristan de Cunha, so this yeah most remote inhabited island that has got a population of uh, something like 150 people, I think. Um, but I, I met the the doctor there on the island, um, who was this lovely German guy, a retired uh, general surgeon, who had just gone out there for a, a bit of an adventure. And he, he took me for a tour of the, the hospital on the island, which was completely empty. And it was this, it was this uh, superb, you know, brand new, high-tech, um, UK government-funded uh, medical centre with pretty much everything you could, you could hope for. And, and yeah, full-on operating suites, had good imaging facilities. It was very well set up. Um, on on the basis that yeah, with the guys living on the island, there's there's absolutely yeah, there's no airstrip, there's no way of getting a helicopter there, there's no way of evacuating anybody if they become unwell, so they have to be completely self sufficient. Um, and uh, yeah, this this doctor seemed like he was a pretty capable pair of hands to be looking after the island. And um, yeah, I felt whilst we were we were there for a couple of days, and and I think it was probably the most relaxed I felt during the whole trip was just knowing that this facility was was right there next door to us. <laughs> Fascinating. Jeez, what an unexpected, um, unexpected uh, tour and visit of a, of a hospital. Maybe we'll have to try and um, find that German, retired German general surgeon and um, get him on the podcast one day. Um, fascinating. So, Yeah, well, I've got his business card. Oh, brilliant. Well, I might get that off you later. Um, so obviously, sort of, you know, fascinating prospect of evacuating someone to Antarctica to receive a higher level of care, um, mm. and then you know to to a, a, an almost uninhabited island with um, with a, with a brand shine brand brand spanking new shining hospital. But on the boat, what was mm. your what was sort of what was your ceiling of care? What did you have at your disposal um, to to look after someone seriously unwell? You know, perhaps paint a little picture for us for for what your um, your clinic was like. Yeah, sure. So I, um, well, the, the sort of clinic that I had on board um, was a big cupboard um, that was full of medical kit. And the cupboard was set up so that when we were on uh, port tack, so when the boat was heeled over to the right hand side, you could open the door and everything would stay in there. And, and it was yeah reasonably relaxed to, uh, to access things. Um, but when we were on starboard tack, so the boat was heeling over the other way, um, it was pretty challenging because you'd open the door and you'd have you know, seven feet worth of boxes falling down onto you and um, medication and equipment going everywhere. And um, they had a, a pretty good going stock of most of the sort of oral medications that you could really imagine needing in, in primary care or emergency care. So 
yeah, good range of um, antibiotics, cardiovascular medicines, yeah, most things that, that you might need at short notice. Um, and then a, a reasonable range of intravenous medicines, um, a couple of big boxes full of, of bandages and sutures and, and uh, splints and yeah, wound care equipment. Um, so I, I'd say it was it was pretty much if you um, uh, if you went to a GP practice in the UK um, with an, an illness or an injury, um, we were probably set up with a similar level of equipment so to what the GP might be able to offer, plus perhaps a little bit more kind of urgent care intervention. So maybe like a bit of a cross between yeah GP and, and minor injuries. Um, but that was pretty much the limit. So um, certainly wouldn't have been able to um, intubate and ventilate. Uh, we didn't have any cardiac monitoring. Um, there's a defibrillator on board, but but that's that's about it. Um, so it's it's sort of a um, yeah. If, if you're injured or if you if you're moderately unwell, um, had most of the things that we would need to look after you. But um, anything beyond that, and and yeah, life would have started to get a bit challenging. And it's a, a GP clinic on the high seas. Um, <laughs> brilliant. That's uh, really, really useful to, to, to paint a picture of, of sort of where, where you were. And yeah, I suppose fingers crossed that when um, when you got a patient, you were uh, you were healed over to the right side and um, you weren't buried under yes. a load of gear. Um, and, mm -hmm. and you mentioned sort of the, you know, the, the boats had some some significant events you know casualties over over the last few years perhaps um what kind of cases did you see you know what what would be common in you know in sailing medicine um uh yeah what, what who did you look after over over that three months yeah so um i felt very lucky really throughout the whole trip that i i didn't have anybody who was yeah, very severely unwell um, and I suppose for the most part, what I was saying was was what you would expect from a population of people who were of mixed ages, but quite a few who are sort of post-retirement age um, for three months. Yeah, it, was, it was all of the um, the cardiovascular, cardiovascular complaints, the kind of minor infections, chest infections, bit of GI upset, uh, lots and lots and lots of seasickness. Um, and a few minor injuries from people being chucked around on the boat and, and bashing their heads and cutting their hands and so on. Um, I had to do a bit of dentistry, which was quite fun. Um, so I had somebody uh, break off a, a, um, a, a cap on the molar um, so that this yeah, crown broke off uh, about two weeks into the voyage and left just a little stub of, of tooth there poking out the gum. And uh, actually, one of the one of the omissions that I realised at that point from that we had on in the medical kit on board was that there wasn't really much in the way of dentistry equipment, and we didn't have any emergency dental glue, which was what I was really after to stick this this crown back on. Um, and so we got some email advice from a a, a dentist in in Holland, uh, asking which of the the various products that we had on the boat would be sort of suitable for sticking this tooth back down with, and. Yeah, we had lots of, of repair equipment, had epoxy resin and Cicaflex and all of these kind of sticky, horrible compounds. Uh, and my, my main concern actually was that they were all their sort of construction grade and that whatever I stuck back down was probably never going to come off ever again. Um, but uh, the, the dentist actually recommended that we use toothpaste, um, which to me, with zero dental experience, came as a, a real surprise. 
Um, but yeah, followed their instructions, and we we gave this kind of stub of molar a, a really good clean with some alcohol, and, and the same with um, the, the the cap that had come off. Um, put a bit of toothpaste on on the molar, and and uh, waited for it to begin going a bit sort of squidgy and setting. Um, and then yeah, pressed the the cap back into place, and, and got her to kind of clamp down with her jaw for it for about half an hour or so. And and it lasted for the next two months. It stayed on amazingly well. Um, so that was a, definitely a lesson to me in, in the, the use of toothpaste as, as superglue. Excellent. Maybe a start of a bit of a changing career. Um, uh, so <laughs> it sounds like like all of us who who work in um, more remote places. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm here up in the moment in in, in the Scottish Highlands, um, and although it's sort of fascinating to work in these places, we all obviously desperately hope that we're not going to see uh, anything particularly serious or, or, or complex obviously um you know looking back over mm. the the many years you've now spent you know offshore you know tens of thousands of miles any particular cases that stand out at being particularly complex or difficult or or sort of interesting i think i've been in terms of sort of purely medical experiences offshore um i feel as though i've i've been relatively lucky so far that there's been lots of kind of complex interesting cases um but never one where i've really felt there was a risk of yeah this person dying or of coming to, to serious harm um so some of the things that i found most interesting have actually been the mental health cases at sea um had one uh, crossing the bay of biscay um back in in 2017 or 18 where um i was on a a tall ship that had a, a group of children from an orphanage on board um, and all from quite yeah well, very disadvantaged backgrounds and and many of them suffering from quite significant mental health problems um, and one person in particular um, stopped taking the medication pretty much as, as soon as they came on board um, and deteriorated in, in their behavior quite quickly um, and and the way that this came to light was that we we found him at about three o'clock in the morning one night in the middle of, of some pretty hairy weather in in, in the Bay um, sitting on the, the rail, so sitting on the, the sort of fence at the side of the boat, not clipped on, nobody knew he was there, he was way up forward where, where nobody could really see him, um, just sort of sat there singing to himself. Um, and it was it was one of those sort of realisations that, yeah, really it just would have been so easy for him to just tip over and, and nobody would have noticed until he was due to come on watch in, in a few hours' time. Um, so with him then it, it was a, a really challenging one because he um he was not really able to keep himself safe and and look after himself on the boat um and so we had to dedicate quite a large proportion of the crew to to doing the looking after and, and keeping a really close eye on him throughout the voyage um and sadly that that eventually ended up with with having to keep him in a cabin um for pretty much the entire trip with somebody in there with him to to yeah keep a sort of 24 7 watch on um, and then, yeah, as soon as we, we arrived in Portugal, yeah, urgently evacuating him home. Um, so that was, a, um, I suppose, yeah, aside from that kind of initial risk to him of falling overboard, um, not necessarily a, an immediately dangerous case, but just a, a challenging one to, to manage him and, and to manage the effect that that had on, on the rest of the kids on board, sort of knowing that there was this person who was, who was having a very difficult time being, yeah, being sort of held against their will essentially in, in the cabin um, Goodness, in terms a, of non-medical 
Sorry, go ahead. What a fascinating case. A real combination of, um, you, you know, difficult patient in a in an environment that really not conducive to to looking after them. Yeah, that you know, goodness me, that must have been very very difficult to to manage. And sounds like did about as good as anyone could in that situation. Had to do our best. Yeah, um, I, I suppose that the thing that really um, uh, appeals to me hugely about the offshore sailing that I do is. Um, alongside the medical side of it is, is the ability just to get involved on the boat and, and yeah, to be part of the crew, to be doing all of the, yeah, the day-to-day -day activities of sailing the boat. Um, and for me, to be honest, that's, that's where the majority of the sort of emergencies and crises have, have come up offshore. has been not so much in the medical side of thing, but just in, in the, the boat management, um, uh, various things breaking, boat beginning to sink. Um, we had an experience up in the Arctic with uh, losing our, our captain overboard, um, where we'd, we'd sailed up to uh, Yan Mayan, which is a, a little volcanic island in the, the middle of the, um, the, uh, the in, in the middle of the ocean, way up north of, of Iceland. Uh, it's about 750 nautical miles, I think, from the, the North Pole. And we um, had anchored off the island. There's, there's no uh, sort of safe anchorage or harbour or anything. There's just a little bit of a scoop that you can sort of, yeah, nose the boat into. And had been running a few landings ashore where we've taken the, the inflatable dinghy with an outboard motor on it to, to take groups of, of guests ashore to, to go have a wander on the island. And at the very end of the day, then the, um, the, the first mate and, and the engineer decided that they would like to go ashore as well. Um, and in an act of probably relatively poor forward planning, the, the captain of our boat decided to take them ashore in, in, in the rib, in, in this inflatable dinghy. Um, and so he set off with the, yeah, the, the first mate and the engineer, brought them ashore, turned around to come back to the boat. And uh, by this point in the day, then the, the weather had been deteriorating and, and the wind was getting up and, and it was starting to blow quite strongly off the land and, and out to sea. And as he was coming back in, in this dinghy by himself, uh, the outboard engine cut out and um, he, we could see him from the boat sort of desperately trying to get it restarted and nothing happening and big clouds of smoke kind of billowing out from the engine. Um, and within a few minutes, he'd been blown straight past the boat, yeah, a few hundred meters away from us and, and off towards the North Pole and was yeah, trying desperately with a little pair of plastic oars in, in the dinghy to row back against the wind, but making absolutely no head, headway and, uh, and yeah, rapidly disappearing off towards the horizon. Um, and of course, leaving the, the first mate and the engineer both standing on the shore. Um, and so left on board the, the tall ship that we were on, there was, there was myself and the second engineer, who was uh, a sort of 18-year-old Spanish guy, and um, a bunch of paying guests who'd done hardly any sailing before. Um, so we, we had a, an interesting time, me and the, the, the second engineer, uh, getting the engine started, which is, is quite a procedure in, in boats that big. Uh, and then working out how to get the anchor up and manoeuvre out of the, the anchorage whilst we were being blown up against some cliffs um, in this great big sort of 120 foot, 200 ton tool ship that neither of us had ever had control of before. Um, and uh, by the time we'd got the anchor up and, and got out, then the captain had disappeared yeah, over the horizon. He was gone. Um, and so we, we just motored downwind at full speed until uh, one of the guests actually spotted this 
tiny little orange speck on on the horizon, which got bigger and bigger, and and eventually turned into this uh, this dinghy that he was stuck on, and yeah, soaking wet and freezing cold. Um, so we ended up doing a a, a very uh, messy man overboard recovery, but we we got him back eventually. Um, and uh, had to pull this poor guy aboard who was, as I say, was freezing. It was probably yeah, borderline hypothermic, shaking away, and then immediately sticking behind the ship's wheel and, and demand that he take us back to Yan Lion to pick up the, 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 the first mate and the engineer who was left on shore. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd say that was probably the, one of the more stressful experiences I've had, even though it didn't have uh, a huge amount of medicine involved. Well, that's certainly one of the more uh, extreme and uh, and outrageous stories uh, I've heard. And yeah, goodness me, um, that poor guy, poor captain in the in the dinghy. Um, well, it sounds like you've almost graduated from uh, well a while ago. Graduated from medical school, and perhaps time to graduate from um, captain school, if if such a such a thing exists. What's uh, what's next for? For yourself over the next few years, um, both sort of professionally and, um, and and within the sailing medicine field. Yeah, so um, well, in the very near term, what's next is that I'm off to France next week for a, a couple of months of climbing. So very much looking forward to that, and yeah, going to enjoy. I think having a, a decent break from medicine, um, and then afterwards, yeah, back to back to GPing. And then I'm returning to Antarctica next year, so going back on, on the same boat on Europa, um, partly as a doctor and, and partly as a guide this time, um, which I'm yeah very much looking forward to. Uh, and then moving forwards from there, really yeah carrying on with, with doing as much offshore work as I can, as much sailing as I can, um, in the process of, of starting up a little sort of business project to try and... and see whether there's any way of eking out some actual income from from doing all of this because the, the vast majority of my offshore work has been volunteering so far and whilst great fun it's, it's not necessarily be uh, sustainable as a as a career um so yeah a few few things coming up nice there's two two locum gps it's um always good to hear stories of others heading off to france for extended breaks uh, of fun in between uh, periods <laughs> work um fantastic mm-hmm. um i mean jamie been absolutely fascinating to hear um about you know some of your your, your time offshore um both the, the medical and and the non-medical um so so thank you for your time um if if anyone was interested in in getting into sailing um as a sport or perhaps combining sailing with medicine any resources out there that you could point them towards or, or are people able to get hold of you um, if, if, if they'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of people finding their way into sailing and, and particularly yeah, medicine on, on sailing boats, um, I'd say really the, the first things to do are to, to start getting a bit of sailing experience and picking up some qualifications. Uh, and that's really easily done through the the RYA, so the, the Royal Yachting Association. Um, so they run a whole bunch of, of courses on, on sailing yachts that yeah, run people through from complete beginner, never been on board before, right up to yeah, sort of commercial sailing skippers. Um, and they're a, a really uh, easy, straightforward way to, to start building some experience and, and getting some 
getting some certificates, which will then yeah basically act as your uh, as your pass as your key to to get onto boats as the as the doctor. Um, and in finding uh, crew spots on boats, um, well, the, the tool ships are a brilliant way to go. Um, so the tool ships, there's loads of them out there. They're always looking for, for doctors on board. Um, and there are various sort of Facebook groups and, and the tool ships website where you can see what sort of positions are, are on offer. Um, and then for getting in touch with me directly um, or for seeing yeah, some of the stuff that I've been up to, then um, I've got a, a website, exposuremedical.com. And you can follow me on, on Instagram, it's Exposure Medical. And uh, my email's uh, nice and straightforward, it's just jamie at exposuremedical.com. Brilliant. Uh, well, thanks again, Jamie. And um, I, uh, I know there's some, some pretty cool photos of some of your sailing adventures out there, so I'm sure people will enjoy, uh, enjoy seeing them, uh, and especially Europa uh, down in Antarctica with the icebergs. Uh, floating around, um, really some some stunning scenery you've been been lucky enough to enjoy. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. Enjoy France and um, adventures to come in uh, an Antarctica next year. Yeah, thank you very much. And yeah, cheers for chatting with me. It's been good. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.